and as your church set aside to give thanks for what we have. And of all the people on the planet, Father, we should be the most grateful. And sometimes uh, this time of the year we can be the most uh, cantankerous. And so I just ask that you'll protect us from that spirit of, uh, you know, just kind of a grumbling attitude and help us to think about what we have, (laughs) not only in terms of our spiritual blessings, because we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but also because of the fact that we live in a very free country. Even with all the problems going on in the country, it's still the best place in the world to live as everybody is trying to get in here. And we actually live in a state that's one of the freest states in the freest country of the world. So, you know, we're just grateful for that. And we know that You know, pastors in Canada, um, for example, and in Australia uh, just can't get up anymore and preach truth because they're in a climate of being censored all the time. So, you know, you've given us freedom here, so we're very thankful and help us to have an attitude of gratitude today. As we look into your word, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said... Amen. If you could um, locate the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. And verses 19 and 20. Kind of at the part of our study on the rapture where we're asking and answering questions that you guys have submitted. And I have four more to start working through here. Um, I try to pick the questions that everybody seems to be asking. So one of the questions is as follows. Is Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 speaking of the rapture? So let's take a look at that. Isaiah 26, verses 19 and 20 says, Your your dead will live, uh, the corpses will rise. So that's resurrection. Um, you who lie in the dust will awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you and hide for a little while. So it's this idea that God's people are to hide, but at some point they're going to be resurrected. And so people have been taking that as the rapture. A lot of ministries out there are using it in the, in the wake of COVID when the whole COVID scare was at its highest uh, I noticed that ministries were posting this, um, wanting people to believe that this is the COVID crisis that's spoken of here in Isaiah 26, or it's the rapture, or they kind of throw it up there in, in, with no commentary on it to explain to people what the context is, you know, kind of leaving people to their own devices. Oh, well, this this must be about COVID. We're supposed to go into our rooms and close the door, right? That's the lockdown. 
and we're supposed to wait there, and then we're going to be resurrected, and that's the rapture. So it kind of uh, sells, I guess, to, to sling verses around like this. Um, but the truth of the matter is this, this verse, these verses have absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. And the primary reason for that is the rapture is a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, Paul says concerning the rapture, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Uh, that's the Greek word mysterion, which says we will not all sleep, but we will be changed. So what is a mystery? Um, if you think of mystery in terms of English, you'll not understand it because it almost in English has the opposite meaning. A mystery is something secret that cannot be understood unless you have you apply great diligence to understanding it. So you, in a mystery movie, you don't know who the bad guy is until the last five minutes kind of thing. It's something really veiled and hidden and nobody knows what it means and a few diligent people can figure it out. But in Koine Greek, which was the language our New Testament was written in, mystery means the exact opposite. It means a full disclosure. Something was veiled or something was hidden, but now it's been brought out into the light. So when Paul describes the rapture, and this is one of our key rapture chapters or texts, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 through 58, he describes it as a mystery. In other words, something that has been veiled in prior ages, but now is disclosed. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 defines a mystery as follows. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. So you'll notice we don't have to look hard to define what mystery is. Paul uses the expression in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. And then in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 26, he explains what he means by a mystery. Something formerly unknown, but now it's been unfolded or revealed. Um, Vine's expository dictionary of... Old Testament and New Testament words defines the Greek word mystery or mysterion as, quote, in the New Testament, it, mysterion, denotes not the mysterious, as with the English word. And interrupting that quote just for a minute, that's why I said the meaning in English is completely different than the meaning in Koine Greek. If you look, if you read into the Bible, your English understanding of mystery, you'll you'll miss. Well, this passage will remain a mystery to you, I guess. Let's put it that way. Um, you'll miss what it means. A mystery is not something hidden. It's now out in the open. In the New Testament, it mysterion denotes not the mysterious, as with the English word, but that which is being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension and can be made known only by divine revelation. And is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God to those who are illumined by his spirit. 
So there's a lot of people today that are getting really weird with the word mystery. A lot of scholars. They're trying to come up with a definition in kind of extra biblical Greco-Roman sources. And they're all looking in the wrong place for the meaning of the word. If you want to understand the meaning of the word, not only does Paul define it for us, but the origin of the word is found in Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, remember, Daniel 2, and he said to his soothsayers, don't just tell me the meaning of the dream, tell me what the dream was. And if you don't do that, I'm going to cut your head off. You're going to be killed. You want to talk about problems with your boss. How would you like to have him as a boss? Tell tell me what I dreamed last night. And then tell me what the meaning of the dream is. And if you don't do that, you're going to die. And so Daniel, who's just a teenager at this time, is on the chopping block because he is one of the, the group, the wise men, who was being brought in by Nebuchadnezzar as a young man at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity and being taught the ways of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. So Daniel, his life as a very young teenager was on the line here in Babylon. So Daniel 2 verses 5 and 6 and verse 9 says, The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Wow. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, don't just tell me the interpretation. Tell me what the dream was. If you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and a great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 9, if you do not make known to me the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have all agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me that I may know that you declare to me its interpretation. So that's a pretty tough bar to get over, isn't it? Of course, later on in the chapter, this is what we discover what the dream was. It was that giant statue, uh, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, And then there's this stone cut without human hands that strikes the base of the statue, causing the whole thing to crumble. And then as all of these pieces are laying all over the threshing floor, the wind blows them all away. And the stone cut without human hands grows and grows and grows till it fills the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar says, without telling them what I just told you, tell me what I dreamt last night and tell me what it means. So Daniel goes to prayer because only God can declare what? Mysteries. You see why I'm bringing this up? When he says only God can declare mysteries, he defines what a mystery is. 
So in Daniel 2, verses 18 and 19, it says, So that you might might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this, what's our word? Mystery. Now, this is not Koine Greek. This would be Aramaic. But it's still the point in the Bible which reveals what a mystery is. So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers nor magicians nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals what? Mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the end so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. See how this term mystery keeps getting repeated? So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers nor magicians nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. In other words, uh, Dion Warwick and the psychic hotline is not going to help you with this one. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream. And the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries, repetition, has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel, unlike the rest of the uh, magicians there in Babylon, could now, because God told him what, what had happened in this dream or revealed to him what had happened in this dream, Daniel was in a position to tell the king, here's what you dreamt last night and here's what it means. So when Daniel received that information from above, he was receiving something that had never been disclosed. You see that? But now it had. Prior to receiving this information from God, Daniel knew absolutely nothing about what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt, let alone what it means. But now he knows both. And when he's describing this revelation, he keeps saying mystery, 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 mystery. Meaning, Daniel is defining for us what a mystery is. It is something undisclosed, but now has been unveiled. That's what the rapture is in the New Testament. It is something that has never been disclosed, but now it has been brought out into the open And it's only known through divine revelation. I believe that the first time the rapture is ever mentioned in the New Testament is in the upper room discourse. Where Jesus in John 14 verses 1 through 4 makes the first reference to the rapture of the church. 
And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And when Jesus made that statement, he was describing his return in a way that they had never heard before. Because all the other references in the Bible to the return of Christ up to this point in time don't relate to Jesus taking us out of the world, which he's describing here, but they relate to Jesus returning to Jerusalem, his feet touching the Mount of Olives, and in great splendor he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. So here is the beginning of the mystery. Jesus reveals this rapture for the first time. That's why Paul is using the word mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul says the concept is unique to this new dispensation. Which has just started. That Jesus hinted was coming in the upper room. And I'm giving you this background to explain to you why you can't find rapture teaching in Isaiah 26, because that's Old Testament. The mystery hadn't been revealed yet. So Arno Gabeline on this verse says, but here in John 14, the Lord gives a new and unique revelation. He speaks of something which no prophet had promised or even could promise. Where is it written that the Messiah would come and instead of gathering his saints into an earthly Jerusalem, would would take them instead to the Father's house, to the very place where he is? This is something new. That's why Paul uses the word mystery when he's describing the rapture. And in fact, it's not just... The rapture, that's a mystery. The whole church age is a mystery. When Paul explains the nature of the church in Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 6, he explains the church as a mystery. He says that by divine revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the word mystery. Now, you have, you have this background now from Daniel 2, so you know what the, a mystery is. Something veiled, now disclosed. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets in the Holy Spirit, to be specific... The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the, of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Paul says in this age something brand new is happening. Now this is very important to understand. Paul did not start the mystery. Okay? Men do not start dispensational shifts. God started the mystery in Acts 2. Paul was set aside to explain the mystery. And the mystery is this. The entire church is a mystery. Because 
subsequent to Israel's rejection of their own Messiah, God started a new work in Acts 2 called the body of Christ, where you have believing Jews and believing Gentiles, all people of different ethnicities who happened to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and they're trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. They're saying national Israel was wrong in their rejection of Christ. We believe in Christ. And when people believe that, they are part of something completely and totally new that the Old Testament prophets could not even envision because it was outside of their apprehension or comprehension and comprehension because the mystery hadn't been disclosed yet. And the disclosure is this. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles are now equal footing in one new spiritual organism, one new spiritual man called the church of Jesus Christ or the body of Christ. Rapture doctrine concerns that body. So you can go back into your Old Testament and you could read Genesis through Malachi. And quite frankly, you could read most of the Gospels. And you could read until your eyeballs fall out of your head. And you will not find a single reference to what Paul is referring to here. Because the whole church age, the rapture being a part of the church age, is a mysterion. So you will not find the church in the Old Testament. And there's just a few vague hints of it even in the Gospels. It doesn't even start until Acts 2. And you don't even get the full explanation of what God started in Acts 2 until Paul has a chance from prison to explain it. Paul didn't start it, but he is explaining it. It was put on Paul's shoulders to explain this mystery, and the whole church age is a mystery. Later in the same chapter, he says, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So Paul says this church that we're in, uh, this body of Christ that we're in, this is brand new. Where God is not dealing with a nation, he's not working through a nation, he's working through a spiritual man, a spiritual body, dispersed throughout the world, called the church, And people become members of the universal church by trusting in the very Messiah that national Israel rejected. This is brand new. This is a mystery. And so all the doctrines related to the church are similarly mysteries. Um, Gosh, we're in Genesis 14, and I don't think we'll get to it today, but at the end of Genesis 14... This guy named uh, Melchizedek comes up to Abram and gives him bread and wine. And everybody says, oh, isn't that all this? And even the study Bible say this. Isn't that great that Melchizedek started a communion service with Abram 2,000 years before the cross? No, he did not start a communion service. They didn't know what communion was. Communion is an ordinance for the church 
the church hadn't even been unveiled yet. Well, pastor, then what's the meaning of Melchizedek bringing to Abram bread and wine? Here's the meaning. Melchizedek brought to Abram bread and wine. Because the communion service, which pertains to the church, is also a mystery in that prior age. But that's not exciting to preach that, right? Everybody wants to see communion and all these kinds of things in Genesis 14. The fact of the matter is it's not there any more than the rapture is there. So I'm just sort of revealing the um, inadequacy of people that are saying that Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 is some kind of reference to the rapture of the church. It cannot be when you understand the concept of the church age being a mystery or a mysterion. In fact, Jesus himself, I mean, this is way late now in the ministry of Christ. And he says this, I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, Peter means little stone in Greek. It's Petros. I say to you that you are little stone, and upon this rock, different gender there, so the rock is not Peter. Why do I bring that up? Because the Roman Catholic Church wants you to believe that Peter is the first pope. And they use this passage to do it. And when you just look at it in the original Koine Greek, you see it can't be talking about that. So Jesus says, you're little stone, and I'm going to build something on a big stone. Now, I was with, uh, we were with David Hawking in Caesarea Philippi, where this event took place. And this is where the Temple of Pan was, the heart and center of paganism. And that brings to light a lot of the meaning here when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overpower what I'm about to build. And there's this big a sort of cliff over it to the side. And right where we were sitting is all these little tiny, little tiny stones. And David Hawking at that point explained to us these were the little stones that he was referring to when he said Petros. When he analogized Peter to a little stone, that's what he was talking about. And when he said upon this rock and the gender switches, he was talking about that big cliff over there. And you're like sitting there where this whole thing happened and you're like saying, aha, light bulb moment. That's what it's about. By the way, and that's the value of going to Israel. I know they're getting insane over there with all this COVID craziness. And I don't know if it's going to let up anytime soon, but that's the value of going to Israel to pick up things like that because there's only so much education you can hear from a lecture hall and a pulpit. You go to Israel and suddenly you're seeing things that you've been reading in your Bible the whole time and you're no longer watching the movie in black and white. Suddenly you're watching it in color. You're watching it in HD and your Bible is starting to make all kinds of sense. For example, my wife and I, on our honeymoon, actually, we went to Israel, we went to Bethlehem, and not even as part of the tour, there was this shepherd. He must have been a teenager. And he does this whistle, and all of these sheep (laughs) 
just gather around him just like that. And you're looking at that saying, oh my goodness, that's, that's John 10. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. And it was like a distinctive whistle that only the sheep were accustomed to hearing. And so you can read it in your Bible and get, get, get the meaning, but you're just watching it in black and white. Suddenly you're in Israel and you're, you're seeing these kinds of things happen. And suddenly the whole Bible starts to make sense. So, Back to what we were talking about. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, watch the verb now, I will build. What what tense is that? Future. That's oikodomeo in the original. And here it's being used in the future tense. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, temple of Pan, the heart of paganism, will not overpower it. Now, That is your first reference to the church. So obviously the church hadn't started yet when Jesus made that statement or we wouldn't have put the verb in the future tense. So a lot of people have this idea of the the Bible that, oh, you know, once you get into the New Testament, that's where everything shifts. That's where Jesus started the church. In fact, if you go to most churches and you ask a typical congregation, when did the church start? They'll, they'll tell you it started with the birth of Christ. And that's not, that can't be true. Or else Jesus would not have put the church into the future tense. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are just revealing the end of the prior dispensation of law. And Jesus had to end the prior dispensation of law because only Jesus could keep the law, right? So he's the end of the law. And as Israel nationally is ready to reject him, for the first time he starts talking about a new man called the church. He doesn't develop it, doesn't give a lot of explanation on it. We've got to wait for Paul to explain it. Oh, that's why Paul was in jail so much. You ever notice that? Everywhere Paul goes, he gets thrown in jail. Philippi in jail, Caesarea jail, Rome jail. Uh, why, why did God keep jailing Paul? Well, because there's no uh, weight room in a first century jail. There's no cable TV. There's nowhere to get a tattoo, okay? Not that I'm against tattoos necessarily. I'm just saying there's no distractions, And the only thing you have to do there is sit there in solitude. Now, in Paul's case, he was chained to a praetorian guard because he had requested a trial before Caesar. But the only thing to do is to sit there in solitude and wait on the Lord. And there's nothing to do. uh, I don't know, no magazine subscriptions. I mean, nothing. All he has to do is he can sit there and wait on the Lord to receive truth and write it down in what we call the prison letters. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, where he is now developing and explaining the mystery that started in Acts 2. And as he is developing and explaining the mystery that started in Acts 2, part of that mystery realm doctrine is not just how the church started, but how the church will end. 
how will God terminate the earthly ministry or mission of the church? He will do it through the harpazo or the catching up of the church. So therefore, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're seeing rapture concepts in the Old Testament, you're reading something into the Old Testament that isn't there. And people that think that way don't understand this mystery concept of the rapture and the age of the entire church that I've been trying to explain. In fact, Jesus, when he said this, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the disciples said, what are you talking about? Because up to that point in time, all they knew was Israel, Israel, Israel. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. In fact, even when you go to Acts 1, even after his death, burial, and resurrection, but before he ascended, there's 40 days there, remember? And they still didn't understand. Hey, Lord, are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Israel, Israel, Israel. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. That's all they had known going back to the time of Moses, to the time of Abraham. And Jesus never says, oh, get off the Israel stuff. God is never going to keep his promises to Israel. He never says that to Peter. What he corrects the disciples on is the timing you're off concerning the timing because we're now entering a brand new age an inter-advent age called the church you don't know anything about it except through a few veiled references that i've given and you're going to have to wait till paul is jailed to get a full explanation of it So when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, that's like a head-scratcher moment for them, draw-drop moment, because they didn't know anything about a church. The rapture is part of that teaching that they didn't know anything about. And Jesus doesn't disclose the rapture until the upper room for the first time in the most veiled of ways... But Paul takes the disclosure of Christ and doesn't start the mystery, but gives a full explanation of the mystery. There probably isn't a man that had more abilities than the Apostle Paul, when you think about it. Paul was a, first of all, an apostle. Secondly, he was the greatest missionary I think the world has ever seen. When you track his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And that would be enough of a career, wouldn't it? But God says, no, there's one other thing you're going to be, Paul. You're going to be theologian in chief. You're going to be the greatest theologian, obviously other than Christ, that's ever walked the face of the earth. Because in your 13 letters, it's going to be given to you the task of disclosing a new dispensational shift that started in Acts 2. So Paul wrote Galatians, he wrote the two Thessalonian letters, he wrote the two Corinthian letters, he wrote Romans, and then he went to prison in Rome and he wrote the prison letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, and he's let out of prison and he writes 1 Timothy, 
and Titus, and then he's thrown back in prison at the end of his life. Then he wrote Second Timothy. And in those 13 letters, you get the explanation of the church. That's where you find the rapture. You don't find it in the Old Testament because it hadn't been unveiled yet. So the Old Testament prophets, what could they see exactly? What they could see is the first coming of Christ. And then they had prophecies about the second coming of Christ. But they could not see the valley between the two. Paul could see it. But they couldn't see it. Isaiah couldn't see it. So we've used this example before. It's like looking at two mountains in the distance. And the mountain behind, let's say, is taller than the mountain before. And the only thing you can see are those two mountain tips. But you have no ability to see the valley in between those two mountains. Isaiah couldn't see it, but Paul could see it. And Paul explains it. The valley between the mountains is the age of the church that we're in now. That's been going on for the last uh, 2,000 years. This is why the Old Testament prophets were confused about their own prophecies. Uh, Let me show you where the Bible says that. I don't have it here on the screen. But over in 1 Peter chapter 1... Verses 10 and 11, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So Isaiah had a prediction about a suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, and then he had another prophecy from God about a ruling and reigning Messiah in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And he would say to the Lord, Lord, what's the deal? I don't understand this at all. I mean, I mean, how could you give me a vision of a, of a suffering Messiah and then almost concurrently, almost simultaneously, give me a vision of a ruling and reigning Messiah, you know, come on, Lord, what's it going to be? I mean, is he going to suffer or is he going to rule and reign? And so Isaiah himself is making these careful searches and inquiries, verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So Isaiah himself did not understand his own prophecies because of timing. He saw the two mountains in the distance, but he could not see the valley in between. That's why a lot of the Jews had two messiahs in their thinking. They had someone named Ben uh, Joseph, son of Joseph, they call him, who would suffer. And then around the same time, there'd be somebody else called Ben David, son of David, who would rule and reign. They didn't understand that first the Messiah comes to suffer and die. And then after a valley and a long hiatus, he comes to rule and reign. They couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it because the church age, which includes the rapture, was a mysterion. 
the mystery hadn't been disclosed yet. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. Paul could see it because God told him what was happening in the valley. And here we are in the year 2021 with a completed canon with all of the jigsaw pieces available to us and we can put the whole thing together. Little old me can put the whole thing together. I I can know stuff that Isaiah himself didn't know. Yeah, this prophecy goes over here and this one concerns the church age and that one concerns the second coming. Come here, Isaiah, let me give you a theology lesson. Because I've got an advantage that you don't have. I've got a completed canon. Do you understand what a gift it is to have all 66 books like we have it? I mean, it is a, we are some of the most privileged people that have ever lived. Because you can understand Daniel better than Daniel. You, you remember the end of the book of Daniel? You remember what Daniel keeps saying, Daniel 12? I heard, but I didn't understand. Remember what the angel said? Go your way. In other words, go and die and be resurrected. And you've done your job. You've recorded it. But you're not supposed to understand it all. Because there's pieces of the puzzle that are missing. So this is, I'm I'm trying to explain theologically the insanity of saying Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 is about COVID. It's about the rapture. It's about the lockdown. It has nothing to do with any of that because you would be, you would be forcing Isaiah to see something that God hadn't disclosed yet. This is why when you read the prophets, they skip over things. Have you noticed that? By the way, Christmas is coming. This is going to be on all your Christmas cards, right? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Well, that's the first coming of Christ, right? No problem there. What's the rest of the sentence say? And the government will rest upon his shoulders. Hmm. What do we do with that? Well, if you're an amillennialist, you just spiritualize it. Jesus is reigning in your hearts, you see. But that's not what the passage says. It talks about a literal government that he will bring to planet earth. It's described in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Now, is that happening today? As you look at the political scene, is the standards of righteousness and justice being upheld? Obviously not. So this is obviously not happening today. Well, let's just take it and make it allegorical and fuzzy and say Jesus is reigning in our hearts. Okay, well, do you take verse 6 literally? I mean, was there a child born to us? Yeah, that's literal. What about the rest of the verse? Oh, that's allegorical. Do you realize that if you did that in the field of law, you'd be disbarred to switch your method of interpretation in the middle of a verse? And yet this is what Augustine taught the Christian church to do going back into the fourth century. The truth of the matter is Isaiah skips from first coming. It's like throwing a a rock in a placid pond where you're 
pretty good at it and you can get it to skip. Isaiah goes right from first coming, right over a bunch of stuff that he couldn't see and talks about the second coming. Well, why couldn't he fill in the details about between the two skips? Because the church is a mysterion, a mystery. Hadn't been disclosed yet. Uh, How about this one? Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, even the coal of a colt of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, you look at verse 9, that's talking about Jesus and his first coming, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, promoting his messianic credentials to the nation. Everybody understands that. What no one knows what to do with is the rest of the verse. What about speaking peace to the nations? I mean, are the nations at peace today? Is his dominion being exercised from sea to sea? Well, come on, brother. You're being a wooden literalist, and you need to just get more allegorical in your interpretation. This is just talking about Jesus in some kind of metaphorical sense reigning in our hearts. Okay, you want to do that with verse 10? What are you going to do with verse 9? Is that literal? I mean, did Jesus really ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Oh, yeah, that's literal. So let me get this straight. You just switched your method of interpretation right in the middle of two verses. Try try doing that with statutory construction. Try doing that in the field of contract law. I would say the constitutional law, but our Supreme Court is experts in allegorical interpretation. (laughs) Do you you realize that what our Supreme Court does to the Constitution, they would never do with a business contract? And they would never do with estate planning? I mean, when it comes time for you to receive your inheritance from your parents or grandparents, are you going to sit, sit by and let some judge interpret allegorically what's coming to you? I mean, it's, it's crazy what's going on as we have different rules for different things. Of course, we do this with the Constitution because we have Marxists that don't like the Constitution Because the Constitution is about limited government and Marxism is about maximum government. So we have to be allegorical with the Constitution where you wouldn't be allegorical any other area of law. Now, how did I get off into all that? I have no idea, but let me return here. So Zechariah sees first coming and then he skips, 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 skips. Second coming, both literal. And he doesn't explain anything in the middle. Why couldn't he explain anything in the middle? He couldn't explain anything in the middle because what's in the middle is a mysterion. And he, Zechariah is scratching his head, not knowing what to do with this. Daniel is scratching his head, and God just says, go your way. You're not supposed to understand it. Just write it down. 
But here we are in the year 2021 with hindsight, and we can understand the whole thing because we've got all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, how about this one here? Daniel 2, the legs of iron, Rome. And then it jumps right into a global ten-king confederacy controlled by the Antichrist, which will be cataclysmically overthrown at the second advent of Christ. Well, I want to know, Daniel, what's happening between the shins and the ankles? Or maybe a better way of saying it is between the ankles and the feet. I mean, you've got these legs of iron, then you've got these feet of iron and clay. I want to know what's happening in between those. And Daniel doesn't say anything about it. Why does he not say anything about it? Because what is in between the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay is a mystery. The whole church is a mystery, including all doctrines associated with the church, which would include the rapture. So with all of that being said, what do we do with Isaiah 26, verses 19 and 20? If it's not the rapture, what is it talking about? The second advent is a two-testament doctrine. You can find references to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, what's the oldest book of the Bible? the book of Job. Job 19 says, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will take his stand on the earth, second advent. Doesn't say anything about him coming for us and him taking us off the earth, but he does reveal the second advent. So the second advent is a two testament doctrine. The rapture is not. The rapture is a one testament doctrine. You will only find it alluded to in John 14 verses 1 through 3. And then after that, most developed in Paul. And then after that, alluded to some by the other apostles, but not developed and explained the way Paul explains it. So when people are telling me Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 is about the rapture or it's about COVID-19, they're reading into the passage something that Isaiah is not talking about and could not talk about it even if he wanted to because the mystery hadn't been unveiled yet. So if that's all true, then what is Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 talking about? Your dead will live... Their corpses will rise. You who live in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of dawn. And the earth will give birth to departed spirits. Come, my people. Now, that's got to be the first Presbyterian church right there, right? My people. No. Come, my people. Enter into your rooms. Close the door behind you and hide for a little while. What is this talking about? It's talking about here the remnant of Israel that will go into the tribulation period and be converted during the tribulation period. 
That's what it's speaking of. It's talking about the nation of Israel going through a time of unparalleled distress. That is not your future as a member of the church, but it is the future of unbelieving national Israel. Joel 2.2 of that time period says there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. It's unprecedented what Israel must go through for her eyes to be opened. Uh, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of whose distress? Jacob's distress. Not First Baptist Church of Houston, or Second Baptist Church of Houston, or 800th Baptist Church of whatever, not Sugarland Bible Church. It's a time of distress for Jacob because Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel in Genesis 32 and Genesis 35. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. But he, who's the he? Jacob, national Israel, will be saved from it. In other words, a believing remnant is going to survive this. And they are going to be personally rescued by Jesus Christ at his second advent. And so Isaiah is comforting that remnant prophetically as they're going through that process. Um, Daniel 12 and verse 1 says, Now at that time Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, what people would that be? Israel, not the church, because the church is a mystery will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, who's your people? Israel. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So Israel goes into this time period. And as they're going into this time period, Two-thirds of them are being killed. Zechariah 13, verse 8 says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. What land would that be? Land of Israel. That two parts, two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. What is happening here is Israel is going into this time period, going under extreme duress. Two thirds of them are being wiped out. A third survives. And by the time you get to the end, a third of Israel remains and they're in faith. That is the process. Matthew twenty four twenty one talks about the same time period. For then there will be great tribulation. Isn't it interesting how all these verses are all saying the exact same thing? 
such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, who's the elect here in context? Israel. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There has to be a surviving remnant at the end in faith, or God can't keep his promises of bringing the kingdom to the earth through Israel. You can't bring the kingdom to the earth through Israel if there's no Israel. So the process is they go into this time period. The remnant is protected through this time period. And by the end of the time period, they are in saving faith. That's what Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 is talking about. How do I know that? Because verse 21 comes after verse... 20. How come all of these ministries that quote this verse and try to make it the rapture, and this is about COVID, and this is about lockdown, how come they just quote verse 19 and verse 20, but they leave out verse 21? Verse 21 says, For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now, I hope you don't see yourself in that time period or else Romans 8 verse 1 has no value to you. Because Romans 8 verse 1 says, for there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is a blueprint, not for the church. This is a blueprint for Israel. In fact, this couldn't be a blueprint for the church because the church at this time was a mystery. See how easy this is? And so they're going to go through this time period. And you know what's going to happen when they get to the other side of this? This is amazing. They're going to get resurrected bodies. How do I know that? Because that's what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress since has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time... Your people, everyone who's found written in the book of, in the book will be rescued. And then what does verse 2 say? Many, tell me if this doesn't sound like Isaiah's 26 that we read earlier. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there is not just a preservation of the remnant there is not just a rescue of the remnant there is not just a conversion of the remnant in the events of the tribulation period by the time you get to the end there's a resurrection of the remnant and you say well doesn't that include us it has nothing to do with you your resurrection already happened seven years late earlier or more at the point of the Rapture. In fact, Daniel 12 verse 2 couldn't even be talking about your resurrection because that resurrection is a mystery. Easy stuff. Um, that resurrection that they're going to get is spelled out in Revelation 20 verse 4 through verse 6. It's called the first resurrection. Well, that must mean it's the first resurrection ever. No. If that's the first resurrection ever, we got a real, now we got a real problem. 
Because that means Jesus wasn't even resurrected. Now, that's a, would you call that a minor theological problem? No, that's huge. So when he says first, he's not saying the first ever. He's simply saying the first in relation to the resurrection of the damned at the end of the thousand years. So my wife gives me my chores and she says, first, go get the car washed. And I say, okay, this is the first time I've ever washed the car in my whole life as married to you. Now, you can talk to her and she, she would probably validate that. But that's not what normal language means. It's first in relation to other things I'm supposed to do. See that? So when he says first resurrection here, he's not saying the first resurrection ever. He's saying what's going to happen is the believing remnant will receive their resurrected bodies at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then a thousand years will pass and all of the unsaved get theirs after. It's not the first ever. It's first in relation to a sequence here. So the whole thing looks like this. There's going to be a rapture. That's us. At the end of the church age. That green area in parenthesis is what Isaiah could not see. The exit of the church at the end of that parenthesis is what Isaiah could not see. Paul could see it. Isaiah couldn't. But here's what Isaiah could see. He could see a seven-year time of distress that the remnant of Israel will go into, be converted through, saved through, rescued, and then receive their resurrected bodies at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's what Isaiah 26, 19, and 20 is talking about. When it says you're in, in verse 19, your dead will live, The corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust of the wake. That's not talking about the rapture. That's talking about the resurrected bodies of the saved remnant at the end of the tribulation period and the start of the millennial kingdom. So does that add a little more light on these verses? And I went into that detail because Once you have these tools, you're able to analyze not just how Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 is being misapplied by people by reading the rapture into it. But you'll see how any Old Testament passage is being misapplied by people when they read the rapture into it. And this is what we would call rightfully dividing the word of God. Not all pieces of the jigsaw puzzle go in the same spot, right? I mean, when you when you put a puzzle together, you don't just stack up the pieces. No, you say this piece goes here, that piece goes there. That's what God expects of us as competent students of his word. That is his expectation that we handle his word properly. So look at that. I was going to get through four questions today. Obviously not. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word. Help us to um, understand what you've revealed and make us expert
craftsmen of your revealed truth in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. happy limited intermission.